Welcome to another episode of Downtime with the Cranston Public Library. We're a podcast for cool people who love libraries where we talk about what we've been reading, what we've been watching, and what we've been loving. I'm your host, Taylor, and the branch librarian at the Oaklawn Branch Library, and my pronouns are she, her. Hi, and I'm Cynthia Reed. My pronouns are she, her. I work for the Community Libraries of Providence, and I am the Acquisitions and ILL Specialist. Uh, my name is Guy Benoit, and my pronouns are he, him, and I work for Spurwink, Rhode Island as a vocational specialist. Thank you both for joining us today. And um, for once, it wasn't given away by our guest intros, so I will let you all know that a little bit later in the show, we, we've talked to some people on the show before who are currently making music in Rhode Island and in the music scene in Rhode Island. But today we thought we'd take a trip down memory lane to the Rhode Island music scene in the 80s and 90s and uh, Guy and Cynthia's memories about that and maybe how it's a little bit different from today. But before we get into that, let's start off as we always do with what have you been reading? Whoever Whoever wants to jump in. You know. <laughs> I wish I can remember the name. It's that, I think it's called The Library Book <laughs> by Susan Olin, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Angeles, uh, yep, yep. Library Fire. I'm actually currently reading that. And I'm also reading uh, Bill Bryson, The Body. So I'm going between both of those books. They're very, uh, both of those books I can read like kind of chapter to chapter. And they're kind of like separate I don't know. It doesn't, I can put it down and pick it back up kind of books, which I really like. Um, so I also like short stories for that reason too. But um, yeah, I'm finding them both fascinating. So for the library book, I find because I've been working at the, in the library system for 32 years and they're trying to explain to me how the library works is kind of <laughs> redundant. So <laughs> I'm like going over those parts. Kind of quick, so. Yeah. <laughs> like no i know how yes i know how you're looking, looking for like errors yes or, exactly or... Um, I'm like i know how interlibrary loan works okay <laughs> <laughs> my mother recommended it to me so i was like all right mom uh, i'm reading a book by peter stanfield or stanfeld i think it's stanfield called 1972 which is uh, an examination of the counterculture in london in 1972 with the uh Kind of failing of the hippie movement and the rise of glam rock like T-Rex and Roxy Music and whatnot. And that's a subject I'm just very interested in anyway. So um, like you're saying, you read it and you kind of see little nuggets of stuff you're very, very familiar with. And uh, then I'm starting to read a book from my book club called Frankenstein in Baghdad. But I, I read the first chapter, but it didn't register at all because I'm still reading the 1972 books. I'm going to finish that one and then start Frankenstein from in Baghdad again mm. and uh, reboot that. I usually only can do one book at a time. Yeah, I, I, I try to impress myself by reading two books yeah. at, at once, but it, it never and I works. Forget. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, I feel like I've heard the title Frankenstein in Baghdad, but I have no idea what it's about. Uh, well, I'm not going to tell you so that you okay. can, can go and, and read it and it was like it was a finalist for the for the man Booker Prize. Oh, I love Booker and Prize and whatnot. So, so you got to stop whatever you're doing and find a copy here at the library. I actually like Booker Prize in. books. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan. Okay, 
You don't want to give us even like nope, I'm not gonna, log I'm not line for, no, for no, our no, listeners no. to see if it's the type of thing they want to read or not. No, just no, I'm not going to do that thing. You you guys are going to have to you oh. guys are going to have to dig in. He'll just okay. tell you it's a fiction book. It's a fiction book. <laughs> okay. It didn't um, happen in real life. Well, yes. I mean, the the original Frankenstein didn't happen either. At least I hope not. Wait, that would be really bad. <laughs> they did base a movie off of it. A couple of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I read a couple interesting graphic novels recently. Um, so I read one um, that was kind of DC's take at like a middle grade novel they've done that with like the dear justice league and the dear there's a villain version of that book that i can't think of what it is but so they've been trying to break into more like one-offs about certain superheroes and stuff for middle grade and so i read um i think the whole title is kid constantine and the mystery of the meanest teacher um and i picked it up because i know a little bit about constantine as a character i haven't read any of the comics but i know that he's a pretty you know dark character you know like communicating with demons and crossing over into hell and all of that so i was like how are we going to make this middle grade appropriate cuz some of the scenes of the movie are still seared into the back of my brain and i'm like a full grown adult Yes, Keanu Reeves <laughs> pulling a no. opening scene of him pulling a demon out of a little girl with like a mirror. Yeah, it's wild. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, how are we gonna make that uh, like middle grade friendly? But they the premise is that Kid Constantine is a young um, Constantine. They all they say is that he goes by Kid because his dad's name is also John, but they don't really go into like if his dad is like the John Constantine or if his dad's just name is John he seemed like a regular guy the little bit we saw him in the in the graphic novel but um so it's this young um Constantine he gets in some hot water with some ghosts in London so he needs to be sent to a boarding school in America till things cool off in London um and he meets a um a young woman who also, uh, you know, is not all that meets the eye in terms of her connections to supernatural stuff. And uh, they try to figure out why a teacher that in past years had been very nice is suddenly mean and has it out for Kid Constantine. So that was a fun little read. Um, And there was a nice uh, kind of Easter egg for longtime comic fans with the ending uh, and the reveal of who his... uh, his friend in the novel is. So that was fun. Um, And then the other graphic novel I read recently was called A Study in Emerald. Uh, It's a Neil Gaiman story. uh, And it's kind of a Lovecraftian take on the Sherlock Holmes uh, study in Scarlet. Um, So that was interesting. And as someone who um, likes Sherlock Holmes, like I really enjoyed the BBC Sherlock. Um, it was interesting to see this kind of like eldritch horror twist to the story, something a little bit different than the normal kind of detective story that we get. So that was fun. Cool. 
Um, so uh, we, I mean, we've already talked a little bit about movies and shows just based on uh, the books that we've been reading, but have either of you been watching anything interesting lately? Um, I've been watching The Anarchists, which is a documentary about the, uh, the sort of anarcho-capitalists who go to Acapulco and try to set up a, I'm not going to say a lawless society, but a society where um, government isn't, isn't uh, uh, emerging from a, a centralized power. It's a documentary. And that's really interesting and, and kind of funny. And watching What We Do in the Shadows which I find really funny. And I've been watching a lot of older, um, I watched Anatomy of a Murder, the Otto Preminger movie, and I watched Stage Fright, the Alfred Hitchcock movie. And I've been going through the Criterion Collection, um, Noir in Color, which is all film noir, but not in black and white. Watched Lieber to Heaven recently, which is super Technicolor, Gene Tierney. So it's weird that you see these really dark, uh, frightening, uh, macabre plots but in this really vivid vivid color as it's presented so that's what i've been watching lately i'm trying i'm trying to watch less tv fewer tv programs and more movie um i I just get so mired down in in watching tv that i'd like to watch something that kind of stands on its own in a two or three hour segment as it were um i love what we do in the shadows i think that show is hilarious so i love that but um, I feel like I haven't been able to concentrate watching movies so much. I think I need to go to the movie theater these mm. days to actually go see a movie because I feel like I start looking at my phone and my computer and everything. So right now, I feel when I do watch uh, the TV, I am watching like Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> good, good, good. But I'm also watching uh, this great British reality TV show called Love Island, mm-hmm. which <laughs> is so great. And I found out about it through the New York Times, their TV critic who loves it. So I felt like, all right, mm-hmm. I'm allowed to like this. So, all right. you know, all right. and uh, <laughs> I'm also watching The Bear, which is uh, the new FX series about, um, um, about a, a cook, guy. Right? Uh, yeah, he's a chef, actually, who takes over his brother, his dead brother's sandwich shop. Uh, he's um, like he worked in the best restaurant in the world and he's going back to Chicago to keep this restaurant going because it's like world fame. I'm not, it's very famous in Chicago, but it's a very, very good. It's only eight episodes. It's an FX TV show. And Mm -hmm. I'm always a big fan of the FX TV show. So very good. Um, Guy, you talking about trying to watch more movies. I feel like I frequently, Sometimes between conversations between me and my boyfriend or just conversations between me and other people, a movie will come up and I'll be like, oh, I've never seen that movie. Mm. And so the movie most recently was The Martian with Matt mm-hmm. Damon. Oh, that's a great movie. Uh, it was a great movie. I like that movie. Because uh, my boyfriend decided to read the book because he watched the movie when it came out, but had never read the book. So he was reading the book and he's like, oh, this makes me want to watch the movie again. And I was like, oh, I've never seen that movie. And then he was like, that's it. We're watching the movie. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I had never seen it before. I knew it was Matt Damon on Mars, but that was about all that I knew about it. Um, But, yeah, my boyfriend described it as F, yeah, humanity kind of movie. Like, look at the... um, the kind of strength of the human spirit that like one man could be trapped on Mars and then like 
survive and got get off of Mars by growing a bunch of potatoes. Just yeah. So it was a lot of fun. It 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 had that lovely message to it. It also had the side note of like everyone who works at NASA are massive nerds, which I think we already knew, but like I appreciated it in a new way watching Starship. I liked Apollo 13 so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that movie. Those guys look extra nerdy in Apollo 13. That's true. Everyone in, From the 60s. Everyone in uh, The Martian looks amazing, whereas everyone That's in true. They look Apollo like, 13, they got like the brown polyester shirts. And they don't look like movie stars. Neckties. Right? Yeah. They don't look like Hollywood types. Yeah, I was just going to say, that's because almost everyone in The Martian is super famous, which I didn't. Donald Glover in The Martian? Yeah, Donald Glover's in yeah. The Martian. Right. Uh uh Jeff Daniels is like the head of NASA um right Kristen Wiig plays like a serious role in the Martian yeah there's like so many famous people in the Martian um which is funny to me that I only ever had heard about it it's like oh yeah it's the space movie that has Matt Damon in it when it's like Matt Damon and so many other famous people um but yeah so that was a lot of fun and uh and I appreciated like I know some of it was probably fictionalized and I know some of it was made more dramatic for the movie, but I appreciated kind of like the hard sci-fi that it was, that it it seemed like, you know, they were, someone was doing the math and figuring out if this thing was even remotely possible in order for it to be um, in the story. So that's always fun. And we'll return to the show after a quick break. Looking for another way to keep up with what's going on at the Cranston Public Library? Sign up for our email newsletter. You'll be among the first to learn about upcoming programs for kids, teens, and adults, and new services and collections coming to your library. Subscribe at cranstonlibrary.org. If you're participating in the 2022 Adult Summer Reading Program, The activity code for listening to the podcast is CHAPTER. Again, that activity code is CHAPTER. And if you're not playing along, join the fun at cranstonlibrary.beanstack.com and be sure to drink your Ovaltine. So I want us to have enough time to talk about the music scene in Rhode Island in the 80s and 90s. So do you want to talk a little bit about kind of what your connection is to that part of Rhode Island. I don't want to say Rhode Island music history and make you feel old. I have a horrible <laughs> habit of doing that to people. Uh, but no, I'm, It's okay, because I'm old. <laughs> I'm older. It's sneaking up yeah, on Yeah, us. yeah, yeah. Okay. But, you know, what? What? what is both of your most. connections to the Rhode Island music scene at that time? In the 80s and 90s? Uh we were just constantly going to shows and playing in bands. So I was never, I was in a You band. were in a band. A band you were in I a didn't, band. You know, we opened up for the magnetic fields actually one time. So, so there you go. True. That's true. Um, but all of our friends were in bands and we were constantly going out and supporting our friends. And all those friends and bands were constantly supporting their friends and bands. So it was a very, like, I feel very tight knit community back then. Um, yeah, I mean, people were always, you know, hey, do you want to be on the bill with me kind of thing? Or mm-hmm. um, 
here, you should listen to my friend's record, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and we also knew people who book shows uh, that would get national acts and they would get our friends' bands to open up. That's back when that happened a lot more than it does today. Well, it was much easier to do back then. Yeah. Now I feel like the bands that come around, they already have people with them to open. Mm-hmm. So they don't have those opening slots like they used to anymore. Yeah. Uh, just to, to put a caveat, uh, you know, Rhode Island has always had a big blues scene and it's always had a big jazz and soul and R&B scene. And we're not talking about that. We're talking about the mm. the kind of what the punk rock turning into college rock, turning into indie rock scene of the 80s and 90s, which is a uh, its own compartment. So that's where it, we yeah been. a slice so, of that a slice of that, of that kind of that's, that's yeah. not to say that we we are um if you had someone someone who uh, was a uh, you know the equivalent of what we were doing but they were going to see Room Full of Blues or Young Neil and the Vipers or something their experience might be very similar to ours in some way but very different because they were going to see different bands right but those are the bands we went to see over at it was the Rocket which later became Club Babyhead there was Living Room. Church House there was the Church House Inn for a little while. For a while, it was a place called the Campus Club. You had AS220. Last Call Last Saloon. Call. And then lots of like... Um, the Century Lounge. Yep. Yep. The Met. And then you had a lot of... Uh, well, towards the tail end, you started seeing a lot of like um, basement shows or apartment shows. So the Safari Lounge. Yeah. Which was downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there was lots of spaces to play. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like just you talking about all of these venues that seem to kind of cater to a particular audience and a particular type of music? Do you feel, no, you're shaking your head no. A lot of those venues actually had, like like I was talking about, like blues bands would play there one night, metal one night, indie rock the other night, rock bands would play there the other night. You know, there a wasn't. Com- a comedian one, yeah, they would have a comedy night. Was, oh, all right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were like maybe a couple of places that, catered to mm-hmm. you know certain kind of genre let's say but i would say like most of the venues there was like all different kinds of music playing at these places okay then i won't ask the question i was going to ask i'll well, ask, ask, it you can anyway. ask it anyway ask it anyway well no i was going to say do you feel like it's different now because i hear people talk about this in like bar nightclub scenes in terms of like in the queer community like they're they're um, like particularly there used to be a lot of lesbian spaces that there aren't really anymore, like the mm-hmm. death of the lesbian bar. So do you feel like there has been kind of like less places that appeal to that kind of like indie rock niche than there was before? I don't know. Uh, when I say that, I'm not I'm not trying to be evasive, but but things are so less easy to define now. Mm-hmm. Um, back then in the eighties and the nineties, you had a half a dozen to a dozen indie rock labels you could trust, you know, you had touch and go amphetamine reptile, you had homestead, you had sub pop, you had matador. And if any of those guys put a record out, you would buy it. And then you would go to see the band play. Mm -hmm. Um, now you have so, so, so many more bands that are releasing things on their own through SoundCloud or Mm -hmm. Bandcamp or just putting it on YouTube, I can't keep track of it. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Yeah. And, yeah. We, we, we were just raised with a certain uh, approach, and now the approach is totally different. And 
to this day, I still find myself writing down with like a, a pen, um, interesting music labels who seem to be putting out in, you know, stuff that I'd like, but I find it totally overwhelming. So the, the folks today who are going to see indie rock to, to use your term, have it so much harder than we. So, um, I don't know if, if it's harder to find your own space or whatnot, because our spaces were very, very easy to find. And a lot of them are downtown. And a lot of those downtown spaces obviously are gone and been taken over by uh, big money, let's say. You know, these people have bought up these buildings and shut down the nightclubs and stuff. So um, I feel like the places that do have music are more in the outskirts. Okay. They're not like downtown, except for ASG 20, maybe. Right. You know, and uh, then you have like the bigger bands going to the Strand. But I feel like it was more, even though music is more accessible now, I feel like seeing bands was more accessible back then. I don't know if that makes sense. No, I think it does make sense. Like you're saying, there's so much out there that you can get into someone who's making music, you know, on the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. And I think even the idea of like indie or alternative has like expanded so much oh, yeah. that it's not even a genre anymore. It's more like a descriptor for someone who's not making music in the mainstream for the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that we're talking about this now because once again, there are so many more bands now than there were. And looking back, you would go to see, um, Let's say you went to AS220, you went to go see Drop Dead play. Which and is a local Providence band. They're, a, they're a, like a Providence hardcore band who have been around since the early 90s. And if you couldn't find any other hardcore bands to put on the bill, you'd put a rockabilly band on or you'd put an indie rock band on. So you had three bands on the bill. So you would end up going to see uh, Drop Dead play with Small Factory and you know Major mm-hmm. Hemisphere or something like that. And we thought, well, aren't we very diverse and open-minded for allowing this to happen? Aren't, aren't we, you know, deserving of congratulations? But maybe there just weren't enough bands. <laughs> and you ended up shuffling stuff around. And all of this changed after Nirvana got big in 1991. And then all of a sudden, everybody had a band. And even then, <laughs> at the or... absolute peak of its powers, it still doesn't compare with the amount of bands that exist now. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. But what I was going to say, all the bands that existed around that time then all got signed remember they are we had a whole bunch of friends bands that were like on major like on record labels Mm -hmm. that got signed you know and then later on got dropped because they got bought out by bigger labels kind of thing well they didn't sell any records well we won't talk about that (laughs) (laughs) but i mean uh yeah it was an exciting time that you know yeah people got signed pretty easily well I guess pretty easily. Very that, comparatively, that, yeah. Yeah, compared yeah to if now. you look at what happened in the 10 years prior and the 10 years after. Yeah. yeah think, you know, being in, a, being in a punk rock band in the 90s, you could make a nice lower middle class living being in a punk rock band, which yeah. was unheard of before and unheard of after. Right. That's yeah. true. And I don't think labels have the amount of power now that they did then. Like, uh, even like a band like Idols, who I, I really like, I don't know what label they're on. And it, I don't know whether they're on a major label oh, yeah. or an indie or, or whatnot. It, and back then, we really, like he said before, we really cared about what label they were on. The know? brand you can trust, I yeah. think. Yeah. 
where now it's more people like directly bringing their music to streaming services um, and online and Mm -hmm. And and going on tour on their own and yeah so i guess to to get back to um the 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 music scene then um i mean i'm sure it's probably hard to choose but like what are some of your favorite memories maybe in venues that aren't around anymore or for bands that aren't making music anymore like what what is something that really sticks out to you that you miss from then well I mean I'm gonna give a shout out to our friend Ty Gesso mm-hmm. who um starting like in the 90 late 80s early 90s yeah yeah started really bringing in bands to Providence that would have never played here before and he had a uh little production company called Totally Wired. And uh, he brought in Teenage Fan Club. They were at, they were playing at CMJ. And mm-hmm. he just called them up and said, hey, do you want to come up to Providence? This is back when you could do something like that. Contact the band and they just like came up and played. And the same with a band called Stereo Lab. He got them to play in Providence back in 93, I think. Played a few times in Providence. Yeah, but I yeah. think their first show was at the last call back in 92 or 93. And then they played at the last call. Okay. Yeah. There you go. See, that's why I can never do. Yeah, he brought in Bikini Kill. Yeah. He brought in Guided by Voices. So I miss like that. Like I knew almost every show that Ty put on that I was going to enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. Ty had a Sunday night gig that was called Totally Wired, and he made Providence a, a very important indie rock stop for uh for touring bands and he banked on the idea that the the college kids at brown and RISD and to a to a lesser degree pc were going to go to see these shows if you if you budgeted it you know use the the fugazi five dollar price point as they say and it got to the point where you'd go out on a sunday night which is when he would do his shows and you'd go to see stereo lab or you'd go to see friends of dean martinez or Or tiger trap yeah tiger trap who were amazing magnetic fields right and eventually you just trusted ty you just said all right everything he's showing is valuable and even if the band blows it's a fun night um so you just started going every night every sunday night and it's kind of cool that he did it on a sunday night rather than on a Friday or Saturday night, because those were when touring metal bands or blues bands would play. So he said, we'll we'll book it on a Sunday night. It's a bunch of college students. They'll blow off their classes in the morning. (laughs) Or work. Yeah, or work or whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Go to see that. So yeah, we went to go to see, we went on a Sunday night to see Fugazi or Laughing Hyenas or everyone who played for four or five years yeah and then eventually the music starts to change or you start to age out of it a little bit but but ty gesso um and those totally wired nights were incredible yeah she's absolutely right about that yeah Yeah. i miss that what do you miss i miss when you you there was this weird period where you could go to see your friends bands play with local or national bands Mm. And there was always the chance that your friends' bands, and these are the people you knew, Did were going to completely upstage <laughs> the, uh, the headliner. That was always very, That very was always exciting. really interesting. That was like, great. I saw Six Finger Satellite just totally destroy Dinosaur Jr. one night. And everyone had that experience of going to see Velvet Crush open for somebody. And these are these are your friends' bands. These are people you, you know and who sell you records or who sell you sandwiches. and. <laughs> then they go on stage and and uh they uh 
um, completely destroy the band that's coming up from New York City. Right. That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, didn't happen all the time, but it happened enough to notice that you knew these people who were, like you were talking about the comics or earlier, it's like this kind of hammer of Thor thing. Where, oh, look what we found. You know? <laughs> <laughs> what we found in, you know, the, the, the back of this cardboard box or whatnot. That was a lot of fun. So was there like a kind of, I don't want to say competitive nature, but was there? There was, was a there... competitive nature. It was okay. absolutely competitive nature. You want to couch it in um, in uh, this, we're all in this together kind of communal vibe. And Providence was a very, very big live band community. It was very, very into that James Brown kind of smoke whoever gets on stage with you type thing. No one ever admitted it. No so one ever admitted it. They all wanted to open up for bands that came through. Yeah, right? absolutely. So it was, you know, in that sense, I would say competitive. Yes. Definitely. You know, and they wanted to be better than their friends' band. Mm -hmm. But you once know? again, nobody admitted this. No, of course nobody not. Nobody admitted it. And that's what I was saying earlier about, you know, going out and seeing everyone. Mm -hmm. You know, my band would go see Guy's band, or Guy's band would go see Six Finger Satellite. Six mm -hmm. Finger Satellite would go see Velvet Crush, you know, Velvet mm -hmm. Crush would go see Small Factory, but they were all still competing for, you know, the same bills kind of thing. Yeah. So there we yeah, so there was friendly competition. competition. And competition. To work yeah, on the surface, it was friendly competition, <laughs> but it, it was very much that 1960s uh, battle of the bands type thing going on. No, it, it, it was never violent or vicious no. and these people were our <laughs> friends and we all got along great but there was yeah. definitely a, a sense of boy wait till they see this and you know, <laughs> that type yeah. thing you know it'd be like you know like velvet crush went to japan yeah right yeah. and then they'll be like hey mm -hmm. i want to go to japan right why can't we go to japan what do they get to go to japan i think velvet crush went to japan <laughs> this is a providence band who lived off of north main street i think they went to japan and, before and in my house right yeah. before they even had a, a record out they got no, flown they, to they Japan. Had a, they a had single. a fan club. Yeah. They had a fan club. It's like, what is this shit? They're all yeah. going to Japan. <laughs> well, that's interesting that they have a fan club in Japan pre-internet or very early oh, yeah. internet. No, everything was also by fan. There were a lot of fanzines out there. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Who, um, that was how a lot of people actually communicated and <clears throat> expressed the music that they liked was buy these like little magazines that you would edit and bring to Kinko's to copy, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, on your own dime and yeah. hopefully sell it for $5 somewhere. Yeah. They were, they were gradations too. They were like the, the high end fanzines that were cosmetically identical to like, like a really the, uh, weird motor booty forced oh, exposure, big, big takeover, big takeover. And then you had like chick factor, you had uh teenage gang Debs. And I'm gonna say F yeah. Yes. And I was out of San Francisco. Right. <laughs> and you and you would you would open this magazine up and you'd be reading about there was absolutely no editorial oversight in these magazines, so it would be just anything. Like it was it was you'd be reading uh It was like anyone's opinion about yeah. the bands that they liked. Yeah. You know? And then there would be a picture of your friend in it. Yeah. It would be like, oh, Joe Julio is in the new <laughs> right, right. chick fan. And there would be a picture of him like on the Lower East Side of New York eating uh, noodles in a restaurant. <laughs> it really was very immediate in yeah. a way that is very different from the immediacy of, of the internet. Yeah. Okay. 
So it felt immediate in the sense that, like, you very quickly and very easily could find out about what was going on, like, locally or in the Providence scene versus, like, the immediacy of the internet is like, I can find out what's going on anywhere, everywhere. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. We didn't particularly what was care what was going on in the rest of the world, but we were very excited about what was going on, like in the Northeast. And mm. you'd hear about somebody would, would their band would be playing down at Maxwell's in Hoboken. So everybody would make a trip down there or make a trip down to New York City to go to see uh, somebody play at Knitting Factory. I would do that like- too if I, if I had a friend's band here in Providence and they were playing down in New York City. Yeah. We would travel down to New York City to support them. Yeah, and then everyone would call into work the next morning and say, I'm not, I'm not coming into work. <laughs> and you can do that. <laughs> All the bosses of the 80s and 90s were like, ah, there you know. those damn ah. punk shows! All the bosses of the 80s and 90s, were a lot of them were, were musicians of the <laughs> 60s and 70s. Our, our band, our PA system that we had, for practice was our drummer's boss's PA system from the his band in the late 60s called Snafu. And it was all this stuff that had Snafu written on them. And uh and it was this old like uh you know it had dials on it and everything. <laughs> so yeah. So it was okay. Yeah. So I'm curious not to kind of like circle way back to the beginning, but like I'm curious about both of yours experience being in bands. You talked a lot about going to shows and watching bands, but I'm curious about both of your experiences playing in bands. Well, Guy's band was much more successful than my uh, (laughs) my band. (laughs) I was in two bands. I was Mm -hmm. in a band called Von Ryan's Express. And this will this will show you how different things were. We were we were a band that just played this kind of weird, kind of pulsating improv music that was very freaky. And our drummer, his brother was the singer in Six Finger Satellite, who were signed to Sub Pop at the time, who were a big indie label. So we played a, we would play about once a month, and we would never practice. Just the day of the show, Which we also would, I heard bad luck. Yes. The day of the show, we would get together like a couple of hours before the show and rehearse what we were going to be doing at the show a few hours later and then go play it. And we put out a single that went that that, that was pretty good. And then Jay played the single for the folks at Sub Pop and the folks at Sub Pop said, we'll put a single out by these. So this is these are the people who are putting out Nirvana and Mud Honey Records. And they said, we'll put out Von Ryan's Expressing. So we think, OK, great. We're going to be signed to Sub Pop. So. We played. We hadn't played outside of Providence yet, and we already had a single on Sub Pop. So the people at Sub Pop said, "All right, we want to see you guys." So we played up in Boston, our first outside of Providence show. And uh, folks at Sub Pop said, "We we we're, we want nothing to do with you guys." <laughs> and um, you guys are obviously this is a we liked putting out the single, and it was fun. But but this is the end of the line. And then thereafter, I formed, we formed a, a band called Dehydrogen Terrors, who put out some stuff on Load, who put out like a Lightning Bolt Records. Our friend Ben McCosker. Ben McCosker. And then we drove around the country two, three times. And by that point, I was 20, I, I was 27 turning 28. And my dad died very suddenly. And we all kind of in the band realized that this, this is just, we don't have it in us to 
drive around for for years on end, which is what was necessary at the time. You toured, you put out a record, and you toured for a year, and so we broke up. So it was a, it was a very fun few years, and we got to meet all kinds of exciting people and put out stuff that we're we're pretty proud of. But we did not have the the I did not have the 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 viciousness. The gumption. The gumption to stay on on the road and and do that. I just didn't have it. In my band, we just played locally. We played a few shows. Um, Luckily, my friend Ty, who we spoke about before, just, you know, would ask us to open up every once in a while. And then it kind of petered out after that. Yeah, but the folks, like the folks in Yoga Tango liked you and... Cuddy and those guys liked you, and it was a good band. So, you know, right. it wasn't yeah, it yeah. wasn't just this product that brought out yeah. for people. That's true. That's true. It was valuable. Yeah. Yeah. So it was fun, but it was uh it was a lot of work, you know, and I didn't feel like practicing. I think that was my uh my whole thing. <laughs> you know? I liked going to the shows. I didn't like the to work at having to, you know, get better. I was like, ah, that's okay. <laughs> a lot of work. What were each of your roles in your respective bands? Like, what did you play? Um, I sang, and I also played bongos. But then later on, I started drumming, actually. I was the singer. Awesome. The chorus kid in me is like, I hope that you were the singer. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't very good, but, you know. Yeah, well, neither was, was I. You know? so, but back then, it was wide open. <laughs> exactly. But it's like fun. punk music, do you need to be? I like. I don't want to say the punk singers are not talented, but I'm just saying like the the style of music is not necessarily known for like technical. Right. We're, we're not Beyonce. Music. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. All open for interpretation. That's what I say. So. I just I just thought of something too. Is that. If you recorded a uh, a tape, like not even you made it a record, like let's suppose you recorded a cassette and you had 400 or 500 of these things or a single or a record, you're, it was your responsibility mm. to systematically sell these things. So you had to call up regional distributors who would buy them five or 10 copies at a time. I actually worked for someone. I had to do that. For yeah. a record label, my it, friend Eric Masanaga's label. Oh yeah, that was uh, the Dam Builders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So instead of putting it out on Bandcamp or or SoundCloud, what they have now, which is very easy. Yeah, you add you had these physical things that you had to get out into the uh, into the world, and the truth is, you it's virtually impossible to do that. I I, I joke that that I'm going to have a stack of the hydrogen terrace records and they're going to be trying to close the lid on my coffin and I'll still be holding them. People are going to be like, we just can't get rid of these things. And, <laughs> yeah. You, 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 you really had to make a weird bargain that you had enough faith in yourself to sell a thousand records. Cause if you didn't, you were always going to have this reminder that you didn't. So. It just makes me think of like being in an MLM where you like buy all this product to sell and then you don't sell it and you're just like you hear stories of people who have all this product in their garage because no one wanted to buy their leggings from an infomercial or weird tea or whatever they were trying to sell. It's the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) You try to buy all your friends merch, Mm -hmm. right? But it still doesn't. Make a dent. Right, right. It's just more merch. 
Bye. Right. <laughs> it's like, here's the corner of all of my tapes that I didn't sell. And then here's the corner of everyone else's tapes that I bought because I felt bad. Exactly. And all the t-shirts. Oh, yeah. Were the t-shirts like bands making their own designs and stuff, like more homemade? I know you can you could get t-shirts made then, but like... Yeah, that it was less now about, like, getting someone to make merch for your band or you're more of, like, doing it yourself. I mean, I knew screen printers, mm-hmm. um, but I also know, you know, like, Velvet Crush, they sold their T-shirts. I mean, I they didn't stay at home making their own T-shirts, yeah, you know? Yeah, you had a few options. If you were signed to a label, let's suppose you were signed to Sub Pop, Sub Pop would make the T-shirts for you, and they would just mail them to you in a cardboard box. They would, they you would, would still do that. Yeah, they would still do that. Then you had the, the slightly more upscale local bands and they would contact like a regional screen printing company. Like there was a company Liquid Blue and sometimes they could do a run of 100 or 200 t-shirts with a, a cool design. Then you had a bunch of RISD kits over at the um, uh, screen printing thing and they would run off the more uh, um, aggressive uh, or uh, uncommercial uh, things. If you were if you were in a band that just wasn't particularly interested in in the commercial end of things or the niceties, there was a really cool band in Providence, a bunch of Brown students called uh, Dung Beetle. Ah, uh, yeah. And Dung Beetle are interesting for a variety of reasons. But one of the their singer is a guy, a, a really well known author named Sam Lipsight, who's uh, put out a bunch of books unbelievably great band totally hostile and they got a bunch of somehow they came into these t-shirts with the chanel logo (laughs) and they took the chanel t-shirts and they just silk screened the dung beetle logo over them in the most half-assed way possible you could plainly see the chanel go with the the dung beetle logo and the dung beetle logo was chipping and and the paint was coming off you'd occasionally see them people wearing around and you think that's that's cool that's just <laughs> something i would have never thought to do back then we also had a lot of flyers going up mm-hmm. up and down the streets and stuff and all the bands would design their own flyers you know and staple those things to this telephone poles yeah providence has always been very 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 confident in as far as graphic design and the other thing too is that shep ferry who is now internationally famous for the Andre the Giant and the Hope stuff, he started. He was starting to get famous in about 1990. So that lit a fire under people's asses where if pe- people are seeing Shep stuff all over the place, so we're going to come up with something that's going to rival what he's doing. So uh, so Providence was always a really good graphic design town. I, yeah. have no, I have no graphic design ability, but other people, some friends of ours are world class. So you you try to cajole them into making a snappy flyer for you. <laughs> that would be like another thing. They would just, you know, cut and paste back when it was cutting and pasting, really, and bringing that to the copy shop kind of thing. And yeah. Very cool. I stuff. Yeah. Um, so before we wrap up, is there anything that you want our listeners to know about about the the music scene then or or your specific sliver of it? Um, that we didn't already talk about. Uh, I would like to mention um, a guy named Pete Burr, who uh, passed away earlier this week. Um, in about 1988, there was a big transition going on where um, 
musically and culturally, the, the, the what was called college rock was kind of vanishing and you were getting a much, much more aggressive form of music coming in, uh, which would later be called alt rock, you know, and you, I would say the first band to do that was Medicine Ball, who were a really great band. But one of the earlier bands was a band called Backwash, and they were just a really good kind of band that mixed up the replacements and Aerosmith and maybe a little bit of like real early Black Flag. And Pete was their singer. And it was weird because he would have been my age and I would have been going to see him where I'm, you know, a sophomore at Providence College living in a dorm. And then there's this guy in front of me on stage just tearing it up. So, yeah, you know, Pete, uh, Pete uh, did, did everything he wanted to do. And that's uh, valuable. We miss him, mm. along with a bunch of other friends who have passed away. Yeah. Um, the amount of music that we have seen is pretty staggering. The amount of bands that are were maybe just coming up uh, in the scene that maybe went came through Providence and are now famous mm-hmm. is pretty pretty amazing. The bands that we saw back before they became huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and people who I feel that were in our scene here in Providence who, um, also became notable, like our friends, uh, our friend Michael Cudahy, mm-hmm. he had this band called Combustible Edison that, um, they did a movie with Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. And they, um, started this whole like cocktail nation, uh, thing that, you know, people was like, were dressing up in, co- you know, like in heels in their 1950s garb and going out and seeing this band and dancing. And it was lots and lots of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, who else would you say? Well, there's that, that really famous um, record. It meant a lot for a lot of people, but called a uh, girlfriend by a guy named Matthew sweet. And the guys uh, who play on that record were velvet crush who once again lived on North main street. And, and with me. And with her. <laughs> so, I, you could, you could, you, I remember talking with Rick and Paul from Velvet Crush and them saying, yeah, we're, we're working on this thing with Matthew. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be a great record. And then a year later it comes out and people are falling all over it. And, and it's still like on, uh, if you look at best of lists, that record is always on there. Yeah. And always. We, and it half part of it, not all of it, but part of it happened in Providence. Yeah. So you have that and James Murphy, who the main guy in the LCD sound system, he was always up and down in Providence because he was six finger satellite sound man. He built their, their space and on the Royal crowns. Yeah. Yeah. They did really well. Mm-hmm. Um, they were kind of like a rockabilly band that did really well. So we had, you know, um, a, one of the questions I posed today, actually on Facebook in order to, kind of prepare myself for this podcast. And I asked my friends, what were some memorable shows that you remember from the 80s and 90s? And it ran the gamut, like every kind of music, every venue in town, and no one could like agree on their favorite show. (laughs) Seriously, (laughs) like I can name you like probably like a hundred bands that were listed. And no one was like, everyone was like, oh yeah, that show was great, but then they would like list their own <laughs> thing, you know? And no one was like just like saying like one particular show was the best. I feel like there were so many incredible shows during that time. And the fact that 
our friends were all like part of it. I think it was really, really special. Um, and that we got to see all of our friends play, you know, it was a great time. All right. So we like to end the show with a segment I call the last chapter where we talk about a library or bookish related question. I'm going to break a little bit from library and bookish again this week because I'm running out of library or bookish related questions. If you'd like to send me one, please email us at downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. Um, but my question for both of you today is um, with songs like Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill, Making a Renaissance and like being on the charts again because of shows like Stranger Things being set in the 80s, what song would you like to top the charts in 2022 from the 80s? Oh golly. I'd like I would like something really specifically 80s. Like I'm thinking like one of those really frosty eurythmic songs like Love is a Stranger or something like that. You know, I I, I really like I, it would have to be something European, you know. <laughs> it would, you know, I, I'm I'm too protective of the American stuff. So I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm, or you could just throw some cannon fodder out there and just say, give, give, give the Smiths a number one song. Obviously, you know? maybe like a Squeeze song, because I'm a big Squeeze fan. Mm -hmm. Or uh, I was even thinking, like, I'll Melt With You. Everyone loves that song. That's like a modern, good one, yeah. Modern English yeah. is like, everyone Actually, loves that song. I'm going to say a song by a band uh, called Christmas, <gasps> because they were friends of ours. And if they had a number one hit at this point I would love that. in their lives, then we can all go on with our lives happy. So pick <laughs> at a Christmas, not a Christmas carol, right? And <laughs> Christmas, and and let's drive that up to number one to make it look like sales are moving. Well, I would like to see a Small Factory song. Okay. Yeah, right, Small yeah. Factory was another band that uh, was here in Providence that did pretty well. Actually, pretty influential in the indie mm -hmm. scene back in the 90s. Um, but, you know, we all went on with our lives. And, you know, <laughs> and, God, it was and like, the money, it was like, the, yeah. so these records aren't selling. Exactly. <laughs> it's like what Guy was saying, you know, being on the road. And then it's like you're in your late 20s. You're just like, all right, I can't do this anymore. Yes. I need to get a job. That kind of thing. Well, if anyone looking to pitch a show set in the 80s to a streaming service is listening, you've got some songs. We can pick some <laughs> friends band songs. That's too. what we'll do. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. All right. Well, thank you both for joining me. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Like I said, if you'd like to reach out to us, you can do that by emailing downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. You can also reach out to us via social media with hashtag downtimecpl. If you're feeling generous, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it helps people find the show. Thank you again for listening. And this has been another episode of Downtime. Downtime is a project of the Cranston Public Library and is produced by Zach Berger, Nomi Hay, Robin Nazio, and me, Taylor Cardillo. Audio engineering by Dave Bartos. Our theme music is Day Trips by Ketza, and our ad music is Happy Ukulele by Scott Holmes. Links to the books and movies discussed can be found in the show notes. Remember to rate and review Downtime on Apple Podcasts, connect with the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the hashtag DowntimeCPL, and if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, send an email to downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. 
Join us next week for more downtime. The movie is very much like F. Yeah, Humanity. Let me give that again and not get tripped up on it.